One of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today here in the bunker are my own thoughts rattling around in my head. This is being recorded in May of 2020 during the quarantine, or what I have decided to start calling World War One. There is just no way that title won't catch on, despite the fact that almost every single person I have suggested it to has been fairly unimpressed. But don't worry, as of this recording, Lee and Elena are still well and healthy. I actually saw Elena a few days ago in real life. She walked to Trinity Bellwoods Park, which is near the bunker, and I walked to Trinity Bellwoods Park, and we stood about 10 feet away from each other and had a conversation, which is about as normal as an experience can get these days. Elena is currently still hot on the trail of the Loch Ness Monster, and Lee is researching the mods and rockers phenomenon that terrified Great Britain in the early 1960s, and we'll have episodes on both of those topics coming up very soon. But today, I thought I would return to a few of our favorite topics, aliens and UFOs. We have done a few episodes on UFOs already. Uh, Kecksburg, Area 51, Dolce Base, Avril Carr, Project Blue Book, Mantel Incident, and so on. We're not even close to being finished. There's just been some astounding revelations in the last few months about UFOs that we are still processing and figuring out, and we'll come back to those as soon as we can. However, I've realized that while we have definitely covered enough UFO stories to justify having the flying saucer on our logo, there is still something that we haven't discussed nearly as much, and that is the aliens that many people speculate are controlling those UFOs. This is in part because of our methodology and our academic backgrounds. We are much more comfortable discussing events in the context of large social and historical forces. I'm pretty sure we have never discussed a UFO story without also going into some detail about the Cold War or some American intelligence agency or the Air Force. The story that the three of us tell about UFOs is also the story of the time period in which those sightings and speculations take place. To a degree, When we talk about UFOs, we are also talking about the larger social forces and movements that frame and shape the observations that people are making about weird and unexplained sightings in the sky. In other words, UFOs as a phenomenon are part of a macro event. They can't be separated from their social situation. But alleged interactions or close encounters with aliens, while they still have a historical and social aspects to them, they're more of a micro event that individual people have individual experiences of. And so this episode is going to rectify that to a degree. When we talk about UFOs, Lee and I basically can't help ourselves but to bring up Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was in charge of investigating UFO sightings with Project Blue Book between 1951 and 1953, during the only period of time that either of us have any respect at all for that project as anything other than a machine devoted to American Air Force cover-ups and disinformation. As part of his inquiry into the nature of UFOs, Ruppelt worked with an astronomer named Dr. Alan Hynek. Now, Hynek started his research as a UFO skeptic, but as he increasingly came across sightings that he couldn't explain, at the same time he was encountering clear interference from Air Force officials that made it clear they were not being honest with him, Hynek became less convinced that there was nothing going on behind these strange sightings. 
Hynek stuck with Blue Book long after Ruppelt became frustrated and left the project, and after Blue Book was officially closed in 1969, Hynek continued his investigation into the phenomenon. In 1972, Hynek published a book titled The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry. While the book is out of print and not that well known outside of UFO circles, it was extremely influential one way in particular, as Hynek proposed a classification system to describe interactions observers had with UFOs called the Close Encounter Scale. The scale has six steps, and the first three are fairly remote observations. The lowest rung of sightings, and the most common kind of sightings, and the easiest to explain away, is nocturnal light. Next, there is daylight disks, which refers to UFOs that people see in the daytime from a distance of greater than 150 meters, or about 500 feet, away. Then there is radar visual, which includes sightings that feature some kind of electronic confirmation. The next three rungs are all titled Close Encounters. A close encounter of the first kind is when a UFO is seen clearly and from less than 150 meters away. A close encounter of the second kind is when a UFO is sighted and there is some kind of physical trace left behind in the form of burnt areas, radiation, malfunctioning equipment, or biological response in an animal or plant. And a close encounter of the third kind is when some kind of sentient being is involved in the experience, not just a vehicle. The methodical nature of Hynek's scale is a reflection of the methodical approach he consistently brought to his UFO work. However, a co-researcher and fellow ufologist named Dr. Jacques Vallée, who received a mention in our episode on the Philadelphia experiment, suggested a more subjective and less empirical rung should be added to the latter. Vallée suggested that a close encounter of the fourth kind would be an event in which a human is abducted by a UFO, and would include, quote, cases when witnesses experienced a transformation of their reality, end quote. Valet suggested that hallucinations and dreams might be considered entry into this category. And so today we will move off Hynek's carefully laid out system for categorizing UFO encounters and instead dive into Valet's category of the strange and subjective. In our research, we have spoken with and interviewed people who claim to have had close encounters of the fourth kind. As we have discussed before, we believe many of those people when they describe their experiences, but we allow for the possibility that what they experienced, as real as it was for them, may actually have been cases of sleep paralysis. If you're interested in that phenomenon, we discuss it at some length in our Mothman episode. So I'm more interested right now in claimed experiences that can't be attributed to the terrifying but completely terrestrial phenomenon of sleep paralysis. And as I was browsing through various accounts of claimed alien encounters, I started to notice a pattern. Most of these encounters belong to one of two categories. In the first category, people would encounter an alien, which would be surprisingly human-like, and with whom they would share a telepathic connection. Sometimes that alien would take the person back to its home world, and show the person an idyllic land absent of strife, war, and disease. The alien would bring the abducted human back to Earth after showing that human the possibility that things could be better than they are, that the violence and struggle and hatred so common on Earth is totally unnecessary. Sometimes that human would be given a warning that humans desperately need to change their ways, or either a self-made or externally caused disaster would befall humanity. While the warning may be chilling, The overall experience is often one of love, acceptance, and peace. But then there's the second category. 
People would encounter small aliens with large heads and eyes, and no readable facial expressions. The human would then be taken against their will to some kind of strange laboratory, where they would be experimented on in a terrifying manner with all sorts of strange and alarming tools and machinery. The human would then be returned to Earth, often with a bad case of PTSD to show for their experience. We will cover both of these kinds of encounters, because both varieties are fascinating and I think we can learn a lot from them. But today, mostly because I'm in a bit of a mood to be honest, we're going to discuss the second kind of encounter, the terrifying proby kind. Now I had a few to choose from, and some of those we will definitely revisit in future episodes, but ultimately I decided to look into the 1975 case of Travis Walton in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. So let's set the stage. On November 5, 1975, a team of seven lumberjacks headed into the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest outside of Snowflake, Arizona. They had a contract with the U.S. Forest Service to clear out some trees from a 1,200-acre section of the area. However, while seven men went into the forest at the beginning of that day, only six men came back out at the end of the day. And they were six seemingly frightened men with a story to tell. The team leader was a man named Mike Rogers, and after the six loggers got back to town, they reported to the police that one of their crew members, a 22-year-old named Travis Walton, had been abducted. Here's how the story went, according to Rogers. The seven of them had been driving back through the forest at the end of a day's work when a few of the men spotted lights in the sky. They stopped the truck, and Travis Walton got out and stood underneath what Rogers referred to as a UFO. Suddenly, a blue beam of light shot out of the UFO, striking Walton and throwing him through the air, sending him crashing to the ground 15 or 20 feet behind him. Rogers and the other men immediately drove off in the truck, but after they'd gotten a few miles away, Rogers claimed that they had decided to return to the scene to see if Walton was still alive. They claimed that they found no trace of him or the UFO, and after a search of the area, they returned to town and told the police. There is approximately a two-hour gap between when they said they called off the search and when they talked to police. The police, particularly Navajo County Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, were unconvinced that Walton had been kidnapped by aliens, and instead were more concerned about the possibility that, instead of being held in an alien spaceship, Walton had been murdered in some kind of chainsaw duel with one of the other loggers, and that the UFO story was a ridiculous cover-up for that murder. The men's statements were all taken down, and Officer Ken Copeland and Rogers went to where Walton's mother, Mary Cowett, was staying to tell her the news that her son was missing. According to Officer Copeland, quote, When Rogers told the mother what had happened, she did not act very surprised. End quote. Officer Copeland, Rogers, and Mary Cowett then drove out to Walton's sister's house to tell her the bad news. Again, according to Officer Copeland, quote, Mrs. Cowett woke up her daughter and said, Travis is gone. The daughter asked, Where did he go? To which Mrs. Kellett calmly replied, A flying saucer got him. On November 6th the next day, the police organized a large search party to go into the woods. No trace of Walton was found. No disturbance in the dry forest debris lying on the ground at the alleged site of the incident was noted. And according to Copeland and Gillespie, Walton's mother suggested at the end of the day that the search should be called off, saying, quote, I just don't think there's any use of looking any further. I don't think he's on this earth. As the search party was leaving, Travis Walton's brother Dwayne said he would stay a little longer, stating that UFOs, quote, always bring them back to the same spot. I'm going to interrupt my own description of what happened briefly to discuss some aspects of this that I find particularly noteworthy and interesting. If the statements by the police officers are accurate, Walton's family wasn't particularly concerned or surprised about what was happening. 
Of course, it is always difficult to try to analyze the responses of people in odd situations. Frequently, people don't react in ways that you would expect. However, just out of curiosity, I asked one of my own sisters how she would react if I went missing and some of my co-workers claimed I had been kidnapped by aliens. My sister Jessica said, and I quote, If I were an alien, I would be keen to talk to Nathan. If I heard Nathan had been abducted, I would of course miss him, but I would be pleased at who was representing our species in the bilateral talks. Of course, I would hope that they would give him back eventually. Which I thought was very sweet. Now, in addition, it's worth noting how comfortable his mother and brother were regarding the possibility of alien abduction, to the point that his mother called off a search party for her missing son after one day. And his brother made the claim that UFOs always bring their abductees back to the same spot. This suggests the family had a pre-existing interest and familiarity with alien abduction stories, which is something important to note before we continue with the story. It's also worth noting that only days after Travis Walton went missing, Mike Rogers and Dwayne Walton were already contacting UFO investigators and giving interviews. One of those was with the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, and another was the Ground Saucer Watch, or GSW. Both were legitimate organizations that were attempting to learn the truth about the UFO sightings that had been sweeping the nation since 1947. Eventually, part of APRO turned into MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. During one interview with GSW member Fred Sylvanus, Dwayne Walton answered a question about his prior interest in UFOs by stating, Travis and I discussed this many, many times at great length, and we both said that we would immediately get directly under the object as physically possible. We discussed this time and time again. The opportunity would be too great to pass up, and at any cost, except that of death, make contact with them and whoever happened to be left on the ground, if one of us didn't make the grade, to try to convince whoever was in the craft to come back and get the other one. He performed just as we said we would, and he got directly under the object, and he's received the benefits for it. Duane told Sylvanus that Duane had even seen UFOs before, and had even been chased by one in 1963 in the same forest his brother had just gone missing in. On November 10th, Walton was still missing, and the police were still reasonably convinced he had been the victim of a one-person chainsaw massacre. At this point, Mike Rogers, the crew chief, and the rest of the logging crew agreed to take a polygraph test, or, as it is often inaccurately and misleadingly called, a lie detector test. Now, polygraph tests are going to be popping up all over the place in this story in a second, so I thought it would be a good idea to have a brief discussion about the few strengths and many, many weaknesses of the polygraph device. To begin with, the reason I say polygraph and not lie detector is because there is no such thing as a lie detector test. Back in our MKUltra episode, we discussed how the CIA was keen on finding some sort of reliable method through which you could force someone to tell the truth. As regular listeners will likely recall, they tried various narcotics and hallucinogens with little success. The polygraph machine measures several biometric parameters, including breathing rate, pulse, blood pressure, and perspiration. Some also measure arm and leg movements. These measurements are taken and recorded on a piece of paper or a computer screen while an interrogator asks questions. Some of those questions are pretty basic and irrelevant to the topic at hand. Are you sitting down? Are the lights on in this room? That sort of thing. These questions are supposed to establish a baseline for the subject's biological responses, and the interrogator already knows what the true answers are to those questions. Interspersed amongst those baseline questions are the target questions. These are the questions that the interrogator actually wants information on. 
The theory is, if the subject becomes nervous about lying, one or more of those biometric responses might change. The person might start breathing more heavily, or sweating, or their heart rate might go up. If the response to one or more of the target questions appears significantly different from the baseline questions, the interrogator might then interpret those responses as falsehoods. But notice that key word, interpret. The operator of the machine has to base their interpretation on a fairly narrow collection of data, and the fewer questions that are asked, the narrower that collection becomes. Another assumption is that all humans react more or less the same way to lying. And still another assumption is that the person hasn't been training themselves to beat the polygraph test. Because there are, of course, ways to fool it. Now this information I'm about to give you is easily accessible, and polygraph information is not admitted as courtroom evidence in most countries, so I don't feel too nervous in sharing this information. Since the machine measures stress responses, if you train yourself in breathing and visualization techniques, you can mitigate your body's stress responses. If you have time to prepare for specific questions, you can practice answering them in a calm and detached manner. Or you can deliberately try to raise your stress responses during the baseline questions so that any stress response during the target questions is less noticeable. The real worth of the polygraph test is actually mostly psychological. If you believe it is going to work, then your stress will be higher when you lie, causing the machine to register a more obvious difference between the baseline and target questions. And if you have total faith in the machine and the operator, you might just confess rather than getting caught out in a lie. The reason I'm going into detail on this is because this story has a ton of polygraph tests in it, which irritates me since they are one of my least favorite kinds of evidence. So bear that in mind later when I start talking about some of the results that are going to be reported in this case. For example, the first polygraph tests, which are given to Mike Rogers and his crew. I found many sources claiming that the men all passed this polygraph test, therefore providing evidence that they were telling the truth about Travis Walton being kidnapped by aliens. However, in this first test, the men were only asked four target questions, and three of those regarded whether or not they had murdered Travis Walton. Only the fourth target question asked about the UFO, and even then the question was only, did you see a UFO? Not something more specific such as, did Travis Walton get struck by a blue beam of light and get thrown through the air? C.E. Gilson, who was the operator of the polygraph, said later that they were much less interested in the UFO story than in the possibility that there had been a chainsaw murder cover-up. Happily, there had been no chainsaw murder cover-up, because just after midnight the next day on November 11th, Travis Walton's sister received a phone call from Travis from a gas station payphone in the town of Heber, about 30 miles away. After being missing for five days, Travis Walton had returned. His brother-in-law, Grant Neff, and his brother Dwayne drove out to get him and found him in a confused and disoriented state, but otherwise unharmed. They didn't tell the police that Walton had been found, however. The police found out from media reports a few days later. Travis's family instead brought him to some members of APRO, the UFO organization I had mentioned earlier, who requested that he be examined by doctors. The first professional to examine him was not a medical doctor, but a psychologist and hypnotherapist named Dr. Lester Stewart, who had been contacted by Ground Saucer Watch. After that interview, in which Stewart became suspicious that Walton had maybe just been on one long LSD trip, APRO arranged to have Walton examined by doctors Howard Candle and Joseph Saltz, who found no evidence of injuries or burns on Walton, despite the claim that he had been thrown violently through the air and landed on his shoulder although there was a small mark that may have been caused by a needle on the inside of his right elbow. 
He did not show signs of malnutrition, and his urine sample showed no presence of acetone, which would have been present if he had gone without eating for five days. At this point, Travis Walton hadn't yet given a full description of where he had been, or what had happened to him. However, the tabloid newspaper The National Enquirer had been contacted by APRO, and they arranged to have the Walton brothers stay at a hotel room in Scottsdale, Arizona, so that they could be interviewed, and so that they could conduct another polygraph test. The interview was carried out by Enquirer reporters Tony Brenna, John Cathcart, Chris Fuller, Paul Jenkins, Nick Longhurst, Robert Smith, and Jeff Wells, with the help of a hypnotist who worked for the tabloid named Dr. James Harder. And the story that Travis Walton told them under hypnosis was pretty astounding. Quote, When I woke up, there was a strong light in my eyes, and I had problems focusing. I was panicked because there was a terrible pain in my head and chest. My mind cleared a little, and I thought I was in a hospital. I was lying on a table on my back, and these figures were standing over me. It was weird. They weren't human. They were creatures. They looked like well-developed fetuses to me. They were about five feet tall and wore tight-fitting tan-brown robes. Their skin was white like a mushroom, and they had no clear features. They made no sounds. Their faces had no texture or color, and there was no hair. Their foreheads were domed, and their eyes were very large. They had long fingers, but no fingernails. End quote. Later, he would go on to say that he knocked over a clear plastic tray covered in tools and grabbed some sort of slender tube with which he was able to fight off the aliens and escape into another part of the ship. It was in another part of the ship that he encountered a being that looked like a human, wearing blue coveralls and a transparent helmet. This human-looking being led him to another room that contained other human-looking beings, also wearing blue coveralls, but without helmets now. Walton claimed that one of those beings was an attractive blonde woman. These beings forced him down on a table and administered an anesthetic through a conventional gas mask. The next thing he claimed to remember was waking up at the gas station as the flying saucer took off into the night sky. On November 15th, while still staying at the hotel room in Scottsdale, Travis Walton received a polygraph test from John McCarthy, director of the Arizona Polygraph Lab in Phoenix. The test was arranged by James Lorenzen of APRO and paid for by the National Enquirer. According to documents gathered by the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, a nonprofit research group that investigated UFO sightings from the 1950s to the 1980s, McCarthy's conclusions were that Travis Walton had been deceitful during the interview, and his report stated, quote, attempting to perpetuate a UFO hoax, and that he has not been on any spacecraft. End quote. Jeff Wells, one of the Inquirer reporters in attendance, also claimed that Walton had failed the polygraph, but that the Inquirer head office immediately started setting up another test with a different expert. Three months later, Travis Walton took another polygraph test, administered by George Pfeiffer, this time sponsored by APRO. And this time the result was that Walton was being truthful with his claims. However, Walton had specified ahead of time what the target questions should be and how they should be phrased, which would have made it easier to prepare if he had been lying. So at this point in this story, there have already been three polygraph tests and two different conclusions. There are problems with the polygraph tests that support Walton's claims, and I would argue that there's also issues with the tests that refuted his claim as well. With this in mind, I suggest we disregard all of these polygraph results, and that we preemptively disregard the polygraph result that I'm going to mention near the end of this episode, because we're not done with polygraphs yet. Instead, let's look at other less irritating kinds of evidence to try to decide whether we should believe Travis Walton was taken by aliens. First, 
Whenever there is an accusation of a conspiracy, we should ask ourselves how many people would have to be involved on the inside of it. In this case, if we are arguing that Walton's lying, and the whole thing was set up, then there must be a conspiracy of at least Walton himself and Mike Rogers, the head of the logging team. The other members of the group didn't need to be in on the hoax if there was one. Since Rogers was driving, and Walton was the only one who left the truck, the other men could have been not let in on the plan. If a few lights had been rigged up in that part of the forest, the men in the truck wouldn't have had a chance to look closely at the situation before Rogers drove the truck away. It's also possible that Travis's brother Dwayne was in on a hoax, which would help explain his behavior both before and after Travis returned. A three-person conspiracy is reasonably manageable, particularly when all three men would have something to lose by coming forward. Because the general rule is, the more people in on your conspiracy, the harder it is to keep a secret. Because, if I'm honest, we're bad at keeping secrets. For example, Lee told me in confidence that when he watched Harry and the Hendersons, he cried at the ending of it, and then I mentioned that in the very next podcast episode we did, and I'm mentioning it again today, even though this has nothing to do with Bigfoot. But the question still remains, why would they do this? If they were hoaxing, what's the point? Like, what would they have to gain? Well, as it turns out, there is a potential motive for Rogers. He had submitted a bid to the U.S. Forest Service in spring of 1974 to thin that section of the forest out, and by summer of 1975, it had become clear that the job was not going to be finished in the agreed-upon time. He had already applied for a time extension, which he had received, but at a reduced pay rate and the government was going to withhold the remaining funds until after the work was completed, and the new work completion date was November 10th, 1975, only five days after Walton's disappearance. However, the UFO incident provided Rogers with a, quote, act of God, end quote, escape clause for not finishing the job on time, thereby allowing him to collect the remainder of the funds and pay his crew. In addition, the National Enquirer had a standing cash reward offer for anyone who came forward with a case of alien abduction, up to $100,000 for proof of extraterrestrial life. Travis Walton and his fellow logging crew received a $5,000 reward from the tabloid for this story. But why would they think of such a wild scheme as an alien abduction? Well, it became clear once Travis Walton's family started to do interviews that they had an interest in UFOs and alien abduction. While in later interviews, Travis Walton stated that he had no such interest, and Dwayne Walton maintained later that it wasn't until November 11th, 1975, that either of them had taken any interest in the subject, earlier statements by Dwayne about himself and Travis indicated that this was untrue. A psychiatrist named Dr. Gene Rosenbaum, who interviewed and examined Walton after he had returned, said about their interest in UFOs, quote, Everybody in the family claimed that they had seen them. Travis has been preoccupied with this almost all of his life. Then he made a comment to his mother just prior to this incident that if he was ever abducted by a UFO, she was not to worry because he'd be all right. End quote. During the first polygraph test with McCarthy, Travis was asked if, quote, in the past, have you ever thought of riding in a UFO? End quote. To which Travis had replied, yes. In addition... On October 20th, two weeks earlier than the UFO incident with Travis Walton, a TV movie about the possible alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill had been on NBC. There is a scene in that film that closely resembles the story Walton told about the Grey Men and their operating table. Now, there's no evidence that Walton saw this film. But the timing is, at the very least, an interesting coincidence. 
and it isn't far-fetched to assert that two men who had demonstrated a keen interest in UFO abductions would have watched a movie about the most famous UFO abduction case of all time, particularly back in the mid-1970s when there was hardly anything to watch on TV. Now, to this day, Walton maintains that he told the truth about his encounter. This caused something of a war between Walton and UFO researcher Philip Klass, culminating in an amazing moment in 1993 on Larry King Live, in which Class called Travis Walton and Mike Rogers hoaxers. Mike Rogers called Class a, quote, disinformation specialist from Washington, D.C., end quote, and then Class called Mike Rogers, quote, a goddamn liar, end quote. It is riveting television. Uh, to give you an idea of how angry this fight between Walton and Class became eventually, one need only look at the last will and testament of Philip Class in which he says, quote, To ufologists who publicly criticize me, or who even think unkind thoughts about me in private, I do hereby leave and bequeath the UFO curse. No matter how long you live, you will never know any more about UFOs than you know today. You will never know any more about what UFOs really are, or where they come from. You will never know any more about what the U.S. government really knows about UFOs than you know today. As you lie on your own deathbed, you will be as mystified about UFOs as you are today, and you will remember this curse. And quote. Finally, let's finish the story with one last polygraph test. This one was done on a television show called The Moment of Truth on July 1st, 2008. The premise for the show was typical exploitive reality TV stuff. A person would agree to be asked a series of questions while hooked up to a polygraph machine. If they answered all of the questions truthfully according to the polygraph, that person could win as much as $500,000. On July 1st, Travis Walton was on, and of course was asked if he had been kidnapped by aliens on November 5th, 1975. Walton paused. The music swelled. And then he looked at the host and confidently said, Yes. At which point the buzzer went off and the host told him he had just failed the polygraph test. But setting that aside, since as worthless as I am starting to consider polygraph testing, reality TV polygraph testing is even less helpful. But what do I think happened on that day? I think there is clear evidence that Travis Walton had an interest in UFOs and UFO abductions before the alleged event took place. There was no physical evidence either at the alleged site of the abduction or on Walton himself. There was a financial motivation to stage a hoax and then further financial motivations to maintain the cover-up. Travis could simply have been laying low for the five days, which would explain why there were no signs of malnutrition. Many of the professionals involved in the early stages of this case, including the sheriff, members of the GSW, the first polygraph operator, the psychiatrist, and the medical doctors, all found the case extremely suspicious. As do I. <laughs> 